Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. My next guest is Jean-Éric Plomondon, and he had a really interesting business called Prairie Metal Recycling that he started with a co-founder, built up and ultimately exited. You know what's really interesting about, about Jean's story is it, it has all the hallmarks of some of the biggest challenges you have in business. Number one, he's in an area that is highly commoditized. I mean, how do you make money in a sector like that? You're moving around big, heavy items. You, it's, it's a commodity. It's margins are tight. And yet he found a way to really position his business in such a niched way that he was able to grow extremely fast. The sales side of things worked really well. And then through his own systemization, he found ways to, to drive greater gross profit, gross margins. He ended up building a fabulous business. Now, he does talk through all the other business challenges that you'd find from cash flow and cash gaps and how to make sure that you can actually fund the business and how do you finance it in the first place and all these really big questions that most of us as business owners are asking because we're thinking about growing our own companies. On top of that, Jean was very kind to share a lot of some of the personal challenges he was going through at the time um, from divorce and managing kids and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, you overlay all those things into one story. It's it's action-packed. It's full of lots of lessons. I know you'll get a lot out of this episode, just like I did. This is Jean-Éric Bomondon. Jean, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Simon, great to see you. Thank you. No, I appreciate you making time and coming on the show. Um, I'm really excited to unpack your story and hear a little bit more about your business. It, now, correct me if I'm wrong, it was Prairie Metal Recycling? That's correct. Yeah. So that was uh, one of them. And as we uh, stumbled upon that type of industry uh, from another company that I owned. But uh, yes, that was the, the one that we, we scaled up quite quickly and ended up exiting. Yeah, cool, cool. Well, I think anything to do with um, scrap metal, I personally find quite interesting. I've, I've seen quite a few businesses in that space. But um, maybe you could kick off for us and give us a little of your background on kind of what led you to starting that business. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, the term is like the serial entrepreneur. So I started my first company when I was 18. I, I got into the uh, like a house painting franchise. It's quite popular here in Canada and the US too, I think. And uh, that's when I kind of got the wake up call. It was a real lesson on how business actually works. I was studying business at university at the time. And, uh, you know, I decided in my youthful haste and arrogance to drop out of a full scholarship, my degree in my last year. And, uh, but you know what, I, th I thought, you know, what? I'm going to get into business. So um, I had started to go out and I was working with a company that had a, a couple eBay stores 
and the owner got really bored of it. So I figured out how to buy the company from him. And so one of those companies to kind of fast forward the story is we were at the time, the second largest eBay store in Canada selling fractional bullion uh, pieces, which is really a fancy way of saying coins and bars. But if you're not the authentic coin, you can't call it a coin, you have to call it bullion or rounds. And, non and nonetheless, we had a lot of um, precious metals, we had semi-precious metals. So we had everything from gold and uh, silver, we also had platinum, but we had the really exotic stuff like platinum, palladium, uh, molybdenum, stuff that I had never heard about before. So we had like 50 of these. And so we were essentially manufacturing them in China and then selling them. We were doing retail in Canada, US, but we also had wholesale partners all around the world. And so that was a really fun business. And our number one fastest growing um, item was copper. And so some people were buying these stuff, these things as just like probably junk trinkets, I, I believe. I don't know. Uh, but others were actually buying it because they believed that this was a really good investment opportunity. Uh, at the time, though, copper in China was just getting crazy expensive. And it was getting to the point where it was harder and harder to manufacture it because a lot of our pieces were pretty much a big piece of commodity. And so I had attended a seminar and learned all about this concept named vertical integration. And I thought, okay, well, where can I get you know, copper at its cheapest form? And so this is where I stumbled upon the idea of, okay, I'm going to go find a scrap metal yard. And I'm going to go buy this business so I can get the cheapest form of copper. And so uh, that led me to um, this little scrap yard in the south part of our province in, uh, in Canada here in Manitoba, probably 30 minutes from the U.S. border which then led me down to another province in Saskatchewan where I started to negotiate terms on buying a scrapyard. So, um, yeah. Huh. It's, yeah. It's, not often that we, uh, it's not often that we get um, owners that are buying in first. It's, you know, I mean, our podcast is called Buy, Grow, Sell, right? Because it, it kind of represents a cycle. People get in, you either buy or you do a startup to get in and then you're growing and then if one day you exit. It just so happens I think most people these days, a majority anyway, are, uh, are selling to exit. So it's, I, I love the fact that you, you know, you've actually done the whole acquisition piece and it's not even your first acquisition, right? No, you know, at the time I, I actually acquired an, another business before all this, the one that I skipped over, uh, it was a little paintball company and I acquired it on a vendor take back loan. So in other words, I just got the vendor to basically, you know, finance the, the acquisition or the purchase. So I just paid them over time. Uh, I implemented some pretty quick and easy things, some systems and processes. And I was able to repackage it and sell the business for three times what I essentially didn't pay for in a matter of nine months. And that's really when I started oh, to wow. get hooked on, you know, and I was in my early 20s and I thought, oh, this is fun. You know, of course, maybe a little bit of beginner's luck, but, you know, they're not all that easy. <laughs> but uh, that's when I really got hooked on this idea of, oh, I can really come in, buy them, preferably low, do a lot of work and then, yeah, get out uh, at a premium. So. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Um, with the scrap metal business, um, you know, without diving too deep here, I guess. But what were the sort of typical terms? Did you pay cash? Did you get a vendor financing? What did that look like? So yeah, this is a really uh, in, weird, a weird turn of events. So we we agreed that I would buy the business. Uh, I believe it was for a couple million dollars. Uh, there were some assets, but if you know anything about scrap yards. They run the oldest, oldest equipment ever. They run it right down into the ground and then they still use it and patch it. So, you know, 
thankfully for me, you know, okay, there was some equipment there, but really what I looked at is we were making between 500 and 700,000 a year in profit. And, you know, and there was a bit of land that I could acquire as part of that. And so for me, I thought, hey, I can do a vendor take back. And if needed, I can try to convince the bank to lend against the assets as well down the road if I wanted to get the uh, past owners out of here. Yeah. However, the owners did say to me, well, first of all, you're a city boy. You have, you know, nothing about the country. And we were, you know, we were how far up? you know, 10 hours drive north, maybe 11, 12 hours north of the US border. So, you know, we were so far north that, you know, in the summertime, the sun's up till like 1130 PM. I don't know if that's a strange thing for you guys down there. But for, for us, sure, yeah. uh, you know, so we were really out in the middle of nowhere. I had never driven a semi truck, uh, heavy equipment, any of this stuff. I grew up in the city. So they said, we need to see that you can actually do this, though. So we're gonna give you a six month trial, you can come in work a busy season with us. And, and then we can close the transaction at the end of the season and the off season. And I thought, sure. And they, we negotiated some pretty good, uh, I'd, you know, I was going to get compensated for that. So we went off. So I went and got my truck license in a matter of a few weeks and off we went. And so I started to help out in the company. I, um, and of course, this is already one of my mistakes that I regret. So I not only just got in there and learned the business, but I immediately started to implement changes and started to really just, well, why do we do it Let's, this way? Let's change this. So I implemented a digital scale. I put cameras in. I, I equipped all the drivers with, um, I think at the time we were iPhone 4s, but it was still like leading edge stuff. I think the cameras were starting to get good enough where we could take real-time pictures of paperwork. I was putting stuff into the cloud. I mean, this is back in... 2012 or the cloud was still fairly new and you know so we we're doing now real-time information analytics i had established a contract with hyundai out in south korea we were loading containers and shipping them to the coast and then sending them out on barges and so i was i learned the whole business and towards the end of the season the owners the uh even though they were getting into their i think they were in their early to mid yeah early 60s at the time the price now all of a sudden changed for them uh, because the uh, he, you know the older the older gentleman that was selling goes you know this isn't such a bad business to own after all you know I'm you know I kind of <laughs> spent a lot of my time in the office I was able to kick up my feet and we actually made a lot of money we were able to you know really crack down on some of our heavy expense areas and um, so I basically worked against myself for an increased price. Um, so that yeah, way, wow. Yeah, so, uh, so, so the key is you buy, then grow. Don't, uh, don't grow it before you buy. <laughs> yeah, look, and that's, that's a really, I mean, that's a really great lesson. I mean, I, I guess on the positive side of things, you also had the benefit of getting to know the business. You know, you learned it in and out, you learned what not to, you, you know, in some ways you've probably de-risked that transaction and that, that the, you know, the, the forward sort of projections of the business. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I learned a ton. And um, while we were there, there, there was always these farmers that would pull up to the yard and they wanted to sell us this, this uh, farm equipment this, and they wanted to, a, a good price for it, but we kept turning them away because we're in, in our industry, we're dealing with a lot of heavy, high density, uh, you know, industrial scraps. So heavy, heavy plate stuff, big bars. And so farm equipment, you know, it's designed fairly light and we would call it popcorn scrap, 
in our in that that was a term we would use because it's just big fluffy not not heavy in density and if you know anything about scrap metal you're getting paid by the pound or by the ton right um so fast forward we were finishing the due diligence on the transaction and in a really weird turn of events um this is when social media was still fairly early and new i guess uh they had discovered that uh my wife back home at the time had um moved on to a new relationship and so i didn't know about this uh because i had been blocked from all these channels but they weren't and she didn't know who they were so being the vendors that were about to finance me they said okay well look uh, we naturally feel for you uh but we're not going to be your lenders if you're if you're going to be a, about to enter into a divorce so why don't you go figure that out we'll hold on to this for up to a year and if you sort that out we're here don't worry about it so wow. okay yeah um so long story short i i didn't um you know the uh the marriage was done um yeah, I, I was just the last one to know about it. And, uh, and uh, the business, I didn't actually close on it. But if you could remember when I was learning about the business, I can't remember that all these farmers wanted to constantly sell us the scrap metal. And so that's when the idea was born. I thought, okay, well, um, there's, so I, I had all these connections in the smelters where to sell the scrap metal. And so we did a smoke test. In other words, we put up some ads. We thought, I wonder how many of these farmers are out there. And we thought, maybe we can do this for like a summer or two and, you know, try it out. And we just completely got flooded with inquiries from farmers. And wow. so, we thought, okay, we might have a business here. That's fascinating. So I, 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 that, the fact that you didn't turn... Um, actually close out that scrap. Oh, that, that, was, that was unexpected for me. I was waiting for you right. to come back and close the deal. <laughs> I, I, I've been told not to talk about the, uh, those things, but you know, that, that divorce was a, quite a significant part. And it, you know, in, in yeah. some ways, it led me down a different path. So. Hey, you know what? Like it's, it's life, isn't it? I mean, I don't think there's any point in sort of shying away from it. It's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just stuff happens, right? It's, um, and as you say, I think, I think those sort of, situations you know well i'll share with i'll share uh, one of my friends and advisors said to me during covid um he said you know this everybody runs around saying you know in a crisis you know that it, these sort of situations build character he said i i don't agree with that he said i think it reveals character i think you're already that person and when you are put to st the stress and you are put under the under the tor blowtorch it reveals who you really are Right. And, uh, you know, I, I do think that's true. Yeah. And I think clearly you've come out the other side and, you know, obviously been very, very successful with what you do. So, so you know, congrats and well done. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, um, we went off and started this company. We called it Prairie Metal Recycling. Why did I name it that? Well, I was just trying to find a name that would rank best on search engine optimization at the time. And, <laughs> you know, this is the early days. So I thought, okay, what are these farmers going to look for? And so, uh, and to give context, uh, where, we, where we are and were in Canada is uh, Manitoba, the province of Manitoba and Saskatchewan. So earlier you were telling me about your trip to Canada. You, you flew over those two provinces because it's, it's flat, it's boring, it's agricultural. Uh, we're not necessarily a tourist spot, but this is like the heartland of growing crops. We have some of the best crops that come out of this land um, in the world. So, yeah, uh, yeah. That's was, why. I, I got, I've got, 
Go ahead. Oh, go sorry ahead. to talk over you. I was just going to say, I, I, I got a taste of what you're talking about in that we, we came driving out of the Rockies and on our way to uh, Calgary. And all of a sudden, it just goes from you're really high up to it's really, really flat. And everything was kind of this yellowy color. And I thought, wow, like it's it was such a radical change of landscape in such a short space of time that it, um, yeah, just blew us all away. Yeah, we just did that drive back in in March, and uh, just wait till you cross the border into Saskatchewan; it gets really flat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, no, and and so the advantage to that is that there's there's been hundreds of years of uh, farm equipment that's just been kind of accumulating in all of these pa- back pastures of these farms. And so one of the key things is that we had some relationships with the major smelter there in uh, the capital of Regina in, in, or capital of Saskatchewan in the city of Regina. And so we went and started to negotiate. Um, and so historically, they would not accept farm equipment either. So there was a bit of this. Uh, that's why there was such a backlog of farm equipment. And so being the entrepreneur that we are, uh, we don't take no for an answer very well. And so. You know, I just kept asking, well, what's it going to take? What's this going to take? And finally, we, we got a hold of someone. Turns out this company was owned um, head office out of Moscow, but they had North America office in, in um, Chicago. Got a hold of some VP and said, look, we're, like, we're just not going to take no for an answer. So how much volume do we need to bring in to make it worthwhile? Because we know this is going to take you more time to process. But if you got the volume, you can assen- assign the the crew, the equipment, we know we can make a deal. So the guy says, okay, look, if you can bring in a thousand tons in 30 days, you got my attention. And so to give you an idea, like we had, we've had identified a couple competitors out there and they were probably doing a hundred to 200 tons a month. So the guy basically just said, bugger off, right? Like don't, don't yeah. worry. So before the 30 days hit, um, we had brought in over 2000 tons. Wow. And so the guy calls me up and goes, who are you or who the hell are you and where the hell are you getting this stuff? And so we got his attention <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and to fast forward, we had a, we had a pretty good relationship. Um, it was interesting working with, uh, I had never worked with, uh, with Russians before. Uh, that was an interesting, uh, had a few interesting twists, but n- nonetheless, um, you know, we, we managed to grow this thing where we were bringing in over 30,000 tons per summer. Uh, and summer for us is not a big season. You know, it's really end of May until end of September, perhaps October, if you're lucky, because if you know anything about Canada after that, we're pretty much covered in snow. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. It's, um, I, my brain naturally goes to the, the, the logistics of all this. I mean, h- how did you get, over what sort of area did you collect 2,000 tonnes of metal and how the hell did you get it? Where Did you take it all back to one location? Like, I mean, we could probably talk for three hours just on that alone, but I was just curious how you get that done. Yeah, so uh, thankfully I, I did a bit of work. Um, I did a bit of consulting work before this for logistics companies, so I had a bit of a logistics background and I started to think about, okay, well, what if we were, you know, uh, what if we were the 1-800-GOT-JUNK uh, for scrap metal? And what if we took the scrap metal um, model, but we were just on-demand scrap metal? So we were a scrap yard without the yard. And so uh, a couple other things we did too. And since I had already been in the e-commerce business, I was quite fluent with technology and uh, 
because I was familiar with technology, I was able to start to plot out. Uh, we had a radius of a radius of 800 kilometers. Uh, so in miles, I believe that's about 500 miles. I think, yeah. yeah we're we're kilometers here anyway, so yeah, that makes sense. So if anybody's <laughs> in the U.S., sorry, you'll have yeah, to yeah, yeah. Um, So, <laughs> and so you know, it was a it was a big spread, and uh, the biggest challenge when I had observed the last company because the, the company that I was trying to buy uh, in Saskatchewan before, they would always just scribble stuff down on a piece of paper. And so I had figured out how to get, you know, land locations, which is a way of actually identifying, um, you know, a specific plot of land in, in the middle of nowhere, because Google Maps does not, or it did not work at the time. If you said, I want to go to the middle of nowhere. So I had to figure that out. Um, I brought in some software. At the time, it was Salesforce before they were ridiculously expensive. Uh, I started to geomap things. And you know, and this is also, and so my guys already had, by now we're doing iPhone 5s, 5s. So we actually had a little bit of horsepower and GPS. And so that was really an, one of the big drivers and catalysts for us because our biggest expense was burning fuel. You know, at, at one point we were burning $22,000 of fuel per week, um, just moving all this scrap metal around. So, you know, if you can get efficient and make sure that you're not just going like this all around the province, um, you know, you're going to save that kind of money. And, and sure enough, we did. That was, uh, that was really our focus on year two, three, and four before we sold. Yeah, right. So, so talk to me about that growth then a little bit. It's... Um... You know, you started with yourself. Did you have a business partner? When did you start bringing on employees? How big did the team get? What, what did all that look like? Yeah. So uh, the son of the for the scrap metal that I was trying to buy in Saskatchewan, we had uh, interacted over that summer that I worked there. And so we ended up partnering together. And so that really helped because he had some background. We were We knew where to import our big magnets from. Italy and our grapples from the self part of the US and we were buying we were flying around the, all around the country at auctions buying uh, equipment uh, for pennies on the dollar almost and and then transporting it back so we we had a lot of fun together as the adventure um, and he, he we were just great partners you know he was really um, he he did identify as on the spectrum for autism so he was uh, Asperger's and to me that was just such a interesting learning experience because he would always call me the emotional one and he would not be emotional and he would be so rational and he would just you know and, and if you i have a few friends or uh, acquaintances in my life that have that, uh, that are on the spectrum and if you know anything about it they love to uh, one or two things they just focus in on and for my partner for him it was business so he would just non-stop strategize and we'd be talking about this non-stop so, you know, he helped with a lot with the operations. He ran the heavy machinery and he liked to load. And that's really all he wanted to do. Uh, whereas I got out there, started hiring the drivers, uh, the salespeople. I, I was the main salesperson at first. And the idea there was really how can we, um, well, there's two things. Number one, our competitors, uh, when they would go out to buy scrap metal from the farmers, they were... Um, they would actually make a bigger mess than they would clean up. So what? How? So we realized that if we're gonna have, we're gonna have to fight a stigma already. So we're gonna have to position ourselves as not a scrap metal company, but actually as a farm cleanup company. 
And so that's why we bought these big expensive magnets that uh, had like six Tesla of lift. Like it's, it was amazing. Like you can almost lift a car with a magnet. Um, And so whereas our competitors, they would take like six weeks, they would go there often cherry pick a lot of the good stuff, but leave a mess on the farm. Sometimes they were torching, which is a risk to, to burn things. And to, you know, when we came in, we would be in and out within about six hours, for example, sometimes a little longer, but because, and we would do a very good job cleaning up. So that was a big advantage to our, like using us as a company. And of course the, the word would start to spread like wildfire. Another thing we would do too is, you know, our competitors were notorious for not paying either. So they would come in, take the good stuff, leave, leave a mess, not pay. So we started to just pay up front. And we would form contracts. And uh, so we had all this equipment ready to go. We would mark it. And so one of the big things for us, when I got into the industry uh, back when I had that six-month interim uh, position, uh, uh, you know, we, we did buy a little bit of farm equipment or you know, off-site equipment. And everyone was telling me, well, you got to buy it around 80 to $120 per ton. That's just kind of the going rate. And having already done a bunch of sales and sales training for a bunch of my past companies, I was able to start bringing that down to about $60 a ton, which goes right to your bottom line. Um, especially if you're selling the stuff for $240 to $280 a ton, it's big difference. Well, fast forward with Prairie Metals, um, we had started to figure out, well, we can actually start getting this stuff for $20 a ton. Wow. And uh, by the time we brought some salespeople in, um, we ended up finding a, a couple employees that uh, these girls grew up on a farm. I think they had uh, one of them just came back from doing runway modeling out in, somewhere in Italy. And uh, we gave her a u- company uniform, showed her how to buy farm equipment and sent her out there. And so I basically taught them how to buy it as low as possible. And then next week, we're going to do objection handling. So, you know. We got on the phone and they said, well, John, what's objection handling? <laughs> and uh, because we, we offer them $3 a ton and they just take it. Yes. Wow. Okay. Training's over. So, so yeah. we were able to basically pick up farm equipment for next to nothing and, and turn it around and sell it for um, over 200 and something. So. Wow, that's amazing. A quick little technical question I'm, I'm curious about is, you know, you mentioned you started paying up front and obviously, you know, trust goes through the roof, people like dealing with you, et cetera. But, I mean, I'm imagining, you know, and I'm the layman here, right, but I imagine there must be so much of this equipment and kind of there must be a lot of crap there, right? Like how do you decipher, hey, we're picking up this piece of machinery, but how much of it is actually useful metal versus other stuff you know do you do you weigh it there and pay them on that weight or do you you know three dollars a ton maybe or whatever it was maybe maybe it doesn't matter if there's a bit of crap in there but uh, how did all that work in terms of your pricing and and protecting yourself that oh i mean that's a great question uh so i actually had to build a whole process around this for so for me i i and again i didn't even grow up around this stuff so i had no idea they would say oh yeah right by the swather and the combine and the disker and i had no idea you know, I, I, and I couldn't obviously let them know that. So I would go back and when I had Wi-Fi, I'd have to Google what these things are and figure <laughs> out, okay, well, what these things weigh. And I had no idea. And I couldn't expect my sales staff to do that either. So I had to come up with a very simple system. And so what I ended up doing is I did a point system. I had a green, uh, yellow, and red category, and they would do checks. And then 
I'd have kind of like a, a guideline. And so they would just go around and do the check system. And they didn't even actually know what the checks meant. And I said, okay, <laughs> multiply the red checks by this and multiply the yellows by that and do the greens by this. And then take that and times it by this number. And that's the price. And they, they, wow. and so the farmers would often ask us, you know, well, well, how many tons am I selling or how many tons? Like, what's the price per ton? Cause they're so used to that. And the answer was, no, no, we're not buying the steel. We're here to clean up your farm and we're not charging anything for it. And yes, we're taking this in exchange and that's how we make our money, but it's not about the, it's about us coming in and cleaning it up. And then we would talk about, you know, now you have more acreage. Because if you were farming here and there and you had all the scrap here, now you can connect those two. And if you can grow that much more canola or wheat or whatever you want to grow, what's that worth? Or what's your, your house worth if your backyard is not full of dangerous pest attracting scrap you know, equipment? So yeah, um, yeah. that was our pitch. It's, uh, I, I love that. I, I remember years ago doing a, um, you know, this studying negotiation and different things and and uh, I remember the, the course being led by a very, very smart guy. He did a lot of negotiations for the United Nations. Um, but he, uh, he was sort of saying the whole, what are you negotiating for? And it was the classic, you know, we have a bag of oranges and everybody, you know, classically is haggling over the oranges, right? And, but hang on a minute. What if this party actually only wanted the peels? And what if you just wanted the juice? And what if that person over there just wanted the seeds? And, you know, there's a way to actually get more out of this situation than just perhaps what everyone thinks at the outset. Um, I just love this. I, you know, what you've done there is positioned yourself into this niche with, by the sounds of it, probably no real competitors. And, uh, and you know, you're able to, to obviously extract an enormous amount of value for yourself as well as, as, well as your clients. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so that was really the, the front part, like the front of the house of the business. That's how we position. That's how we sold. Um, you know, and like you said, you know, some of the challenges we had was getting the girls off the farm so that they can go to the next appointment because these farmers love to chat them up and, you know, so, <laughs> um, but you know, that was the front end of it and, uh, it, it worked well. Uh, you know, of course we weren't doing a hundred percent cleanup, 95%. So we had to sometimes explain that stuff to them and, but uh, for the most part, you know, farmers talk. And so the business really did explode. The only, far the only competitors we had uh, were really just down the road. It were all the people we, we created our own competitors. And perhaps we can talk about that with some lessons learned. Um, earlier, you did ask about, you know, the logistics of things. And I, did, did you want me to touch on some of how we did the back end of it? Yeah, please. Absolutely. Okay, great. So a couple of things for us, you know, having seen how the scrapyards operate, a lot of this equipment was really just in like the trucks that they use, the trailers that they use, they were always on the verge of breaking down. And so for me, I had seen this and started to realize what's the opportunity cost of us missing one load. And at the time I had roughly figured one load, like one truck load was roughly 3000 of gross margin for us. You know, and so if we were one truck can bring in between three and five loads a day, what's that cost of not us not having that? So I ended up going out and, uh, you know, to buy a rig, you know, it was minimum a quarter million dollars. And when you've been in business for three months, not many companies want to give you money, especially <laughs> if you're about to go into a divorce. So, you know, and we had already maxed out those credit cards that came to us in the mail for, you know, $10,000 free dollars for six months. And 
we managed to max out our credit at the auctions already. So what do you do? So then we, we went and approached all the, the truck dealerships, you know, in that whole radius and started to pick up a couple of trucks here and there. Now these trucks were like $2,500 a month plus $1,500 a month in insurance. Uh, so they're very expensive because they're very expensive trucks. You know, comparatively, when I would work at the uh, the scrapyard, it was probably $400 all in, you know, fuel excluded. And so, you know, at the time, I you know, I kept in touch with the owner of the uh, that scrapyard and he would say, John, you're crazy. What are you doing? You're going to go bankrupt. And it to the point where we had two extra trucks just sitting there at the smelter's yard. They ended up giving us a little bit of land so we can keep our backup equipment there. They ended up sectioning a whole yard, section of their yard for us as well, which I'll touch on later. Um, but so even though we had a high cost on these trucks, I had realized what's the real opportunity cost here? Because really we only had between, you know, mid to end of May until maybe October at best, if we had a good fall. And then on top of that rain days, like we're, we're driving into the middle of fields. So if it's rainy and you got a heavy load, which this sometimes happened, we would break through the ground and our truck could be stuck for a week or two until we drag it out. So if it's a rainy day, we also, so we realized like the, when the sun is, you got to make hay when the sun is shining. So I don't know if that's a saying that you have out there, but they definitely applied here for us. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I guess that's for the most part, you know, we, yeah, go ahead. It's fascinating. Sorry. Yeah. And I'm jumping in on you, but it's fascinating to hear, I mean, and this goes to the heart of every single business, right? I mean, we can oversimplify things and say, well, every business you've got to somehow, you know, generate leads, close them, do the sales, and then somehow do delivery so you get the extract the value. But geez, at each step of this chain, it's it's at a surface level, your business looks really simple. Oh yeah, we pick up scrap metal and we sell it. <laughs> no, no, it's not that simple. Man, it's actually really quite complicated and there's all sorts of stuff. And what a learning journey. I mean, it's you've really you've really had to um evolve and adapt to to make this the success it was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the key things um, for us, you know, and, and it's, you know, I think, uh, I think we both talk about Value Builder, or I think you're involved as well. And the, the timing of cash flow is so critical. Um, and that's something that we definitely figured out very early. So we learned with our vendor. So our vendor was the scrap metal um, smelter. We can pick up our checks same day we delivered the load. And so that was huge. And then I started pushing all of our vendors to thir net 30 terms. And then I convinced a whole bunch of them to take credit card after those net 30. So this is how we were able to scale quickly because we were essentially borrowing off of our vendors. And we, you know, we weren't, and I, I say that cautiously because I don't encourage anybody stretches a vendor out, you know, beyond the agreement. I, that's a, that's a no go zone for me. Uh, I don't encourage that for anyone, but we were doing this within the terms that we had agreed upon and sometimes 50 days, 60 days so that as we were growing, we were able to deliver a load. And sometimes I would be driving back to Regina twice a day, an extra three, four hours of driving at the end of just to go pick up the check and bring it to the bank because, hey, we were in startup mode and we needed that money to buy the next magnet for the next rig so that we can keep going. Yeah, wow. But you're right. This whole this you know cash flow. I mean, everyone knows cash is king, right? But this 
what we call the cash gap, obviously, right? Between the gap between you spending money and getting cash in again. You know, if you're a business that asks for money up front for a deposit, just ask for a little more and just ask for a little yeah. bit earlier on for the next payment. And it could make a significant difference. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. It's, and it's, it's one of those things, you're right. I mean, you, you know, what's the effect of you putting up your prices by three or 4%? You know, would your customers even notice? Most of them probably not, you know, but three or 4% there, if you were able to trim a few costs for three or 4%, you know, companies can go from, you know, basically in the red to to getting their head above water again, right? So it's, um, yeah, it can make a massive difference. But, um, John, I'd like to shift gear if I can a little bit because I'm, I'm cognizant of your time and, and, and very appreciative of it. But um, love to talk a little bit about the exit. And and curious, you know, if you could remind us, I guess, how long were you in, in, bus- were you in business, you know, in this company? And at what point during that journey did exiting start to become a discussion point? Uh, so after the first season, we had a good season. I ended up buying my founding partner. Um, he just wanted to go on to the next thing. And so that was, so he went on uh, and that, that was almost to be expected. He gets bored very quickly. So, uh, so we, I bought him out and then I brought a new partner in uh, within the second year. And that's when we really started to refine how do we bring our margins as high as we can. And so we ended up scaling this thing to like a uh, I don't know if scaling is the right word, but we had brought it up to a 67% gross margin. So we were, you know, it was wow. a highly profitable business, at least for a couple of 20 year olds or 20 something year olds. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and, and the, unfortunately, that was a little bit of one of my uh, lessons learned is that I had brought in somebody, that second partner, uh, without having the ink dried on his contract. And, you know, there was a, so many legal, you know, delays like if and this is like this is something i would say to anyone if you want to kill a deal just leave it up to your lawyer or accountant but you know without any you know boundaries right just give it to them (laughs) you know i it's as much as we're their client uh we still have to direct them so in hindsight i didn't know that and um this thing just kept dragging so the season had to start so we did i taught him all my trade secrets i showed him how we did absolutely everything and then at the end of the season, he, you know, wanted an advance on profits and dividends. And in my ignorance, I did. And I'm sure you can see where this is going. And so sure enough, he just walked away. And uh, the next day he was, you know, next door to us. Uh, all of his documents basically whited out our name, wrote his on top. And there were photocopies. Um took half our staff, um, all of a sudden, surprisingly, was calling the same farmers, um, you know, and so it, it was really unfortunate that, that that's, I manufactured my first uh, competitor right there. Um, so that made it pretty tough. Um, you know, it really started to wear down a bit on the margins, etc. Yeah. Can, can, I jump, can I jump in on you for a second, John? I, I, I just, because it's such a critical issue, right? I, I get asked a lot, and, and, and I imagine you do too, given the sort of advisory work you do. But I get asked a lot about bringing partners in. Um, I get asked a lot about, you know, giving equity to employees and stuff like that. And I've seen it done extraordinarily well. And, and I think, you, you know, you've just kindly shared a, an example of how, how it can really work against you. Um, you know, this idea of bringing partners in can be enormously fruitful, but geez, you've got to get your ducks lined up properly and, and, and not just from a personality and skills perspective, but geez, the, the contracts, the terms, how we engage, like it, it, it can really be a make or break 
kind of scenario, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, um, you know, at least for us here, and I'm sure it's pretty similar, um, you know, pretty much we're all in the Commonwealth and then even in the US, it's probably worse. Possession is nine tenths of the law. And so for us here, you know, I, and I say this to friends or, or even clients, like if, if the lawsuits for anything less than a quarter million, just forget it. Um, because it's just, it's, it's not worth your energy, your resources, the, the money, not to mention. And so, um, yeah, you really have to be careful and, and you can't trust on the, the legal system. You know, we don't have a justice system. We have a legal system, unfortunately. Correct. And, uh, you cannot trust on that. And then I think a lot, that was a very naive view of mine. I, I didn't have any business really that, uh, sorry, family members that were in business. I didn't know that. And I thought, you know, you just call them up and we can get in front of a judge. Well, it doesn't work that way. Um, yeah. So it's, it, you really, really, and, and furthermore, if anybody asks me, oh yeah, I want to get, in, you know, I really ask them, why do you want to get business with them? You know, are you sure you can't just do some highly commissioned uh, position where maybe you give them a little bit of a base or, or an advance towards commissions, um, you know, which is a little bit more creative so that they do non-performance, at least maybe you claw back or whatever, but do you really need to be a business owner? You know, what's really the advantage there? Like this, and, and I'm sure you touch a lot on this too, is the, you have to have that synergy. You know, I've seen some partnerships come together where one had all the, the grain contracts to sell across Canada and one had all the rail contracts to move the grain across. And so when they came together, nice. you know, it was beautiful. That makes sense. But if it's just because, you know, you guys get along well or uh, you're related or it, I would highly caution against it. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And, and I think the other one I'll add to it is I've seen business owners and they've struggled to, I think, be honest with themselves about this, but I've seen people wanting to partner with others just because they were nervous about being alone on the journey. And and being an entrepreneur and being a business owner can be a very, very lonely journey. But I would say if you're feeling that, if you're listening to this and you're feeling those kind of uh, those type of emotions or you're experiencing that, is that's what good advisors are for. That's what good, you know, you can bring people on the journey without them being a business owner as well. There's lots of other ways of incentivizing them from shadow equity to various other things. So, um, yeah, look, I would just say if you, if you want to know more about that stuff, reach out because there's lots of information right down from different incentive programs, right down to the type of insurances you can have, right down to the type of contracts you need to put in place. And, um, and I'm very happy to refer people on to very good lawyers who will look after you. So, um, Fantastic. yeah, get that part right. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, 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 I do hear a lot of that now with my advisory work handful of my very tight clients, you know, a couple of them, I actually tried to uh, wind it down because I was doing less of the hands-on work and I was doing more of the advisory. And they said, you can't leave us because you're like a business partner, but without having to give you the equity, you have to stay. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, yeah good, good point. Um, you know, one thing that really helped me as well is that I joined an, a group called EO. Uh, EO Canada was our region entrepreneurs organization, and that was really great. So if you're feeling lonely and you feel like you need to bring a business partner, just go join a peer group like that. And I would really caution against that. So I admittedly, I, I brought that partner in partially because I was, you know, a little bit on that lonely side. And the other part of it was I was really getting dragged into court. I had a very difficult divorce. It was never ending. I was constantly having to be pulled into a different province. 
And so thankfully I was very good at building systems, you know, before I had, I was already able to run three companies simultaneously. So I just did what I do. I built some systems, brought somebody, gave them everything I knew, trained them, trained them from a distance and basically dealt with this never ending divorce, or at least it felt, felt like it. And so that was the risk is, you know, now I opened the kimono, I, or I let the fox into the hen house, as they say. And, you know, he thought he was the magic simply because he was the boots on the ground. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. At that point, to, uh, to, to answer your earlier question, sorry if, I, uh, if I'm meandering a little too much. Uh, you know, to your question earlier, um, that was basically when I got a, a sit down from, uh, I had a team of lawyers, unfortunately, and they said, look, um, you're going to have to make a decision. You've got a son uh, with your ex-wife. She's just not being reasonable. So you're going to have to make a decision. Do you want to see your son or do you need to keep your business in Saskatchewan? Because they lived in Winnipeg, which is where I live now in Manitoba. And so you just got to make that decision. So which was, you know, a huge blow because for anybody who's started companies, you know, they were both my babies. <laughs> so I got to make a decision now. And, you know, this is a, at the time I didn't realize it as much as I do, you know, later, but, you know, unicorn startup. And, you know, so uh, that's when I started to think about, okay, what does exit look like uh, for me? Yeah. Well, it's, um, I'm sorry that it sort of had to come to that juncture but it's you know obviously you know, hey you know we always say family comes first right at the end of the day it's uh so you know i can completely appreciate why you went down that path but it's um can, can you tell us a little bit about what did the journey so you know once you made that call what did the process look like how long did it take how did you find did you find did you use advisors you know where'd the buyer come from all that all that juicy stuff <laughs> yeah um and, and so just before i jump onto that and and thank you uh I do mention that though, even though some people tell me, don't talk about the divorce stuff. Nobody wants to hear about that. Um, the reason why I mention it is because oftentimes when you know, so you're talking about selling your company and some people say, well, I'm not going to sell it to them way later. And the reason I mention that is because you often, or you sometimes don't get to choose when you have to sell. And so that's why it's critically important to have something ready in case something sucker punches you or blindsides you. Um, and so that's, you know, why I, I bring that up. Um, nobody likes to talk about divorce otherwise. So, uh, moving forward. <laughs> yeah. But, but your, your point there of build, build a saleable company, whether you want to sell it or not, right? That's the, that's the point. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and if you build those systems so that it's a saleable company, you, you have a lifestyle company now. That means you don't have to do everything. So, um, from, you know, and that, that was a really interesting side point. So I, I now, uh, came back to Saskatchewan because my partner had left and stolen a lot of my intellectual property and staff. And of the staff that did stay, because they saw, you know, what I had built, it was really interesting because I was like, okay, well, let me help out with sales. And my sales girls were better than me. So I was, they're like, get out of here. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'd <laughs> try to help out with the drivers. And they're like, no, 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 we've evolved the processes and we've updated all the doc. Oh, okay. And I, <laughs> because, and it was a really, you know, at the time I was like, oh, I'm trying to help, but they, they had really taken this idea of a system and continuous improvement. Uh, you know, we had built this, um, you know, uh, incentive programs where the, everyone was in line, everyone was rowing in the same direction. And so everyone, so 
non-performers were immediately kicked out. And if there was a, a hole, it was almost like a self-healing system where the guys were just so tight. Um, at, at that point, um, we were like, okay, let's just uh, keep going for now. And I need to figure out what to do. So uh, if that wasn't enough, uh, then this was in 2000 and uh, shoot, I, I forget the, the year now, but we had uh, a commodity crash. And so now um, that affected our, our prices significantly. So even though we had a buying contract uh, with uh, the steel mill and orders from Moscow said, the heck with them, close the doors, uh, we're shutting them down. And so now we had a new challenge to deal with. And we had to shut down basically end of August, early September, which was basically, those were our gravy months. You worked earlier up to pay for everything. And then September, October, that's when you made every, like all the profits. So that was a really tough year now. And then we had to park everything and wait because we couldn't, the prices were now lower than our cost to deliver the steel. And so you might be asking yourself, well, how the heck does this lead to an exit? Um, this is what I think the interesting part is, is that we didn't, the, the story doesn't end where we sold for like umpteen times exit um, because we actually had no revenue. And it was actually uh, an employee that stepped in and said, I know this, how much money this thing makes. I know how well this thing runs. I'll buy it. And we weren't even running. The market was not profitable. I mean, it's a commodity. We knew it was coming back. Steel is a backbone of our economy. Um, and for me, it was, okay, I need to be back now to uh, take care of family. So uh, that was really the, the exit that presented itself to me uh, was uh, an employee that was that got to see and live through all of the systems. They saw how well this thing ran. So the due diligence was fantastic. And um, they did, you know, I didn't, considering the market was where it was, it was amazing that I even sold it. So I sold it for quite a bit considering where it was. Um, and then, you know, a few years later, the market came back and they are doing phenomenally well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think nothing like an employee to understand the risks and relative risks of the business, right? They've they've seen it from the inside out, which is which is the the best perspective to see it from. Um, can you tell me what was the business turning over at its peak? Uh, turning over, and do you mean like uh, like profitability or or sales? Well, I meant revenue because I thought it was probably a little less sensitive, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Like our first year, we did like five million in sales, and I think we brought in like one point two in EBITDA or EBITDA. And then, uh, then the next year, you know, steel prices were starting to drop. So we brought in, I think 4.8 or 4.6. Apologize. It's been a little while now. And then, but we had managed to squeak out 1.6 because we started to really start to refine. And then that, uh, third year, you know, uh, this is not the year that things closed. So we, uh, we had pulled out like, I think 4 million, EBITDA or sorry 4 million in sales and pulled out like just over a million in in EBITDA so we just kept getting better and better at and it's a uh, you know as, as a as a lesson and to me uh, someone had told me this um, they told me you know no matter how good you are at your business because someone had advised me on this because at the time I was thinking hey, I'm doing pretty good like I feel like Superman you know I'm I don't know anybody else has done this well my age, you know, in my area. And uh, 
But someone told me, you know, it doesn't matter how good of a swimmer you are in, uh, if, if you have to fight against a uh, receding tide. And so all of a sudden, that is exactly what I felt. You know, we were doing great, but then when you can no longer uh, sell scrap for what it costs you, like we had to shut down. And so it was very expensive to store the equipment. And so at the time when he bought, we were at zero. Yeah. Yes, it's, um, I think it's a really, really good point. You know, we talked a little bit about the, this macro environment and how pretty much it opens and closes opportunities all day long. And that's the only reason you have a business is because the, the, the environment has created an opportunity that you can seize on. So it's, yeah, I mean, if that, that as you say, tide is going against you, um, you know, you want to you read the signs fairly quickly, I think. It's, uh, yeah, certainly if you want to get out with your shirt on your back. So, um can I ask, how did you and the, the employee, and we don't have to go into exact numbers or anything if it's sensitive, but um, how did you come up with the number? Was it, a, was it a multiple of previous EBITDA? Was it just a fixed asset? How, like just broadly speaking, how, how did you come up with it? You know, at first it started off with a, a multiple of, of EBITDA, um, but it wasn't even, of course, it wasn't a, it was like not a great multiple, but, you know, then it, it really transitioned to, okay, um, what can you get financing for and how can we do um, a, uh, a vendor take back for the rest? And so that was, and so being willing to do that allowed my price to definitely stay up quite a bit. Um, but of course with risks and thankfully I didn't have to do an earn out or anything like that. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, with an employee taking over, I guess it's, uh, they, they're not worried about the the business running, they know it. So um, yeah, look, that's really interesting, Jean. I could I, I I could pick this part pick this stuff apart all day with you, but it's um I'm a little bit cognizant of time. Can, maybe we could um, you could just give us a quick overview of well, what are you doing these days now, now that you've exited and you you know you've moved on. Uh, yeah, so you know the divorce did take ten years. Uh, I did lose custody of my son for two three years, um, and a, about a year after I sold uh, Prairie Metals, I got my son back and uh maybe a year or two after and so th at that point i had already i did start another company sold that um and i uh realized you know what now is not the time to go turn another company around so i i made consulting and advisory work my primary uh i do work with business owners that uh want to build systems uh want to be prepared to sell but aren't necessarily wanting to sell tomorrow and it's been great because I knew that I couldn't get out of the game. So I get to live vicariously through my, my clients and their employees now. And I get to see the impact through their uh, organizations. No, that's very cool. That's very cool. I think, you know, and I know we touched on this at the beginning uh, before we came on the show, but it's, I think we have this shared mission around that, right? Like business owners, you know, they are the backbone of the economy. They are the ones who are employing people. They are the ones going out there and starting businesses and, and making a difference and solving problems. And, you know, they're certainly the hero in our journey, as I know they are with you. So it's, um, you know, it's great to see people like you out there helping people and helping them on the journey and hopefully helping them exit on their own terms and getting to live the kind of lives they deserve. So um, so thank you for all the work you're doing. Thank you. You know, and if, if anybody's uh, listening to this and hearing that story about Prairie Metals, keep in mind that, you know, even my company after that I started, you know, and it was in the concrete industry, I, it, it did not scale up like that either so not every story you hear on on a podcast or reading a magazine is like that so i often find a lot of business owners 
that are quite cognizant of themselves or hard on themselves, you're probably not doing as bad as you think. And, uh, but there's always opportunity to grow. And so I, I agree with, with Simon, reach out, find us uh, an advisor that you connect well with, that you can trust, that has the credentials, the reputation, um, because yeah, it, it can be lonely, but don't beat yourself up. Not every startup is like the one I explained with Prairie Metals. <laughs> great advice. Great advice. Um, Jean, are you okay with people reaching out to connect? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Cool, cool. Well, listen, I've got uh, I've got your LinkedIn address here, and we've got your website at growthstrategy.ca. But for people listening, we will put that stuff in the show notes to make it a little easier for you. Um, if you do reach out to Jean, please give him a little note in there. Just let him know, perhaps, that you heard him on the podcast, so he understands where you're coming from, and it doesn't feel so random. Um, would be polite and nice. Um, but other than that, look, John, I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for sharing your story. You've been very gracious. And, and um, yeah, look, I, I've certainly taken a few things away from it. And as I'm sure all of our listeners will too. So thank you again. Thank you. I mean, I had lots of fun. And yeah, please make sure that you mentioned that you heard us or heard us on the podcast. And my assistant will uh, I'll make sure she gives you a, a link if you want to book a time connecting what, what not. Yeah, awesome. Thank you very much. All right. For everyone listening, thanks for joining us on the show. If you would like some contacts around lawyers or looking at contracts, contracts for partners, insurance, key man insurance, all that sort of stuff, um, we have some fantastic people that we work with. Um, we do not get commissions. We do not make money like that. It's not the way we work. We just want business owners to be protected and be able to have the best tools in their hands. So reach out. We're happy to share. And thanks for joining us on the show. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.